Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Marcus Kirsch. Marcus is a designer, management consultant, and author of a fabulous book called The Wicked Company. Marcus, welcome. Hi, Marcus. Nice to be here. So today, we're going to be exploring difficult questions around what is a wicked problem and why don't point solutions work in the case of wicked problems and why we need to investigate and find wicked solutions. We're going to dig into details like what's the essence of your business? How does design thinking impact the bottom line? And why? Why are you in business? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why aren't you stopping doing that? Why aren't you asking yourself better questions? So that's what today's all about. Marcus, would you mind giving us 60 seconds on your history, please? Yeah, uh, even so on your question, it says 90 seconds, but I'll try to be even more concise than I rarely am. (laughs) (laughs) So I was originally trained as a designer over in Germany and um, ended up finishing my design training around about when the dot-com was popping up. So I started to get into tech quite a bit, started to be a developer as well. So it's design and tech. And then I came over to London to do an MA in a mixture of art, tech, and innovation, which got me into a really interesting position of innovation, really. So since then, I've been mainly working in London, but also globally, depending on what organization I would be working for. Worked through lots of different industries from museums to uh, marketing and advertising to automotive to pharma to, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's a single industry that I haven't scratched yet. And yeah, build sort of innovation products for them. And then in the end, I realized that it's really hard to pull these things off, obviously. However, what I've found is that the context in organizations often is missing to really have these ideas grow. So there's a lot of things missing. They're following through these things because it's not just a one-off point solution and then that's it. Growth and the complexities and different behavior of those new innovations are different. So I started to work in management consulting, which is what I still do today, to help organizations, often with tools from design thinking and service design and that kind of problem solving, to build teams and build the context of this modern problem solving efforts for organizations. Okay, so let's, I mean, what what a fascinating background and uh, having range across so many industries must have given you a taste for how important it is to get a diverse perspective focused on the problem. So one of my favorite quotes comes from Einstein, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher it, but you know, given an hour to solve a problem, I'll spend 95% of my time on the problem and only 5% on the solution. Yeah. I'm curious, why is it so many organizations rush to talk about the solution before they've really unpacked the problem? at its root causes, because in my experience in sales and in most businesses, they are wicked problems. They're complex, they're interdependent, and fixing a symptom in one place just moves it to somewhere else. Yeah, and they're sort of constantly evolving the second, as you said, when you throw a solution at them, they start to adapt, and then it becomes a different solution, still the same core, but it has moved on that makes those things so wicked or problematic to solve. Yeah, so it's really interesting because I think I think it's very historical, right? So we come from having for probably thousands of years 
approach a lot of things through uh, an engineering mindset. An engineering mindset needs a, a really good description of what the problem is, assumes that that problem will never change, and then starts to produce a solution and improve the solution on an efficiency level till it is great. And you can replicate it and you can apply it everywhere, right? You know, you, you develop a recipe or a cookie cutter and it keeps working because it's a linear, simple engineering problem. Now, the problem today is that we're dealing with a lot of dynamics that, are, that flow and evolve. And that's where the engineering approach fails because the engineers will wait for more and more information to fully understand the problem whilst they're doing that, the problem evolves, so they're never done, right? So they actually often then produce something that has moved on and their solution is less effective. And this is sort of where we really need a new approach. So, and the engineering thing has led, led to obviously, you know, factories and industrial revolution and our organizations are still built on that approach, on an engineering problem-solving approach. And this is where the gap is, right? So this is where we today look at social media and services that are way more people problem than they are technical problem. So the technical side, you can do engineering and the people problem is the stuff that evolves. And that's where our organizations are therefore start to fail because they can't tackle it. This is really interesting. I was having a conversation earlier with one of the companies that I'm chairman of. And one of the other advisors made an observation, which is that they don't own any IP. So as an investment, they don't stack up. And I get that. And given that we're trying to bootstrap, it's not such a key issue. But what I'm curious about is I don't believe that that's a handicap. I think if you've developed the thinking that goes behind understanding the problem, it's very difficult to replicate. It's also very difficult to document. You know, it's a double-edged sword. Because if you can't replicate it in your own organization, then it's a challenge. But that's really where culture and operational coaching and you know, the, the real impact of enabling managers comes into its own. Almost none of that is happening. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you're saying, if you can't replicate it, it's a problem. I would, I would potentially argue from the other side, and I would say, actually, because it's so diverse out there, that gives us exponential opportunity to build thousands of companies that all look at different aspects of the problem. Because there won't be one company being able to tackle the whole thing. And you just see how Facebook is failing to manage its own platform because it's such a vast problem now, how people are putting content there, what the dynamics around these groups are, and so on. They won't solve this because as a company, they, think, they still think like that. They can tackle it with some solution and it just won't work. So their mindset, even I would argue, is probably not set there. So I think, you know, I see an opportunity for a multitude of companies trying a differently scoped aspect of the problem and trying to get really, really good at that because that's some, sort of the only chance we have. But that builds potentially a really big, interesting marketplace. Well, I, I think that to build on that, there's some really interesting aspects that uh, certainly I've been looking at, which is how the market will grow for collaboration tools, because I, I think our success will be determined by our ability to play nicely with others. No technology provider at the moment is a one-stop shop. You've got the likes of IBMs and the Accentures that get relatively close, but the reality is they're still having to bring partners in. And the dynamic of how the old uh, approach of command and control 
doesn't work well in a collaborative environment. So in order to be collaborative, you have to uh, be vulnerable first. You've got to be willing to take the risk that you're going to get hurt. You've got to give up control. You've got to give trust. And that's the antithesis of how most corporates are run. Yeah, and I think, again, it's a historical problem because yet again, back in the days, you'd have products, right, manufacturing. And yeah, if you figure out how your competition produces that, you can replicate it easily, right? That's a threat to your business. But the thing is now this, a lot of products, even some services have become commodities, right? You will not make money as a company anymore just doing banking, like account opening. It's not going to sell. It's not unique. Everyone has it, right? So that's not where it sits. So you can easily, if you, if you then look at what, where you're actually going to make your money with, is this complexity and better understanding a particular type of customer, a particular kind of problem for them, and so on. All the stuff underneath, we should share easily so that we can even start to just have the basics running, right? Because if we all have to rebuild the basics, that's just not sustainable. So it's totally fine, actually, to share everything that doesn't give you any margins because no one's going to lose any money because no one's going to make any money with that stuff, right? The money's at the top, the big stuff to crack, the complex stuff to crack. And I think, therefore, often we have this kind of product idea to keep the product to ourselves, whereas there's very little margin on a lot of these things. And if you go out there and, and stop and moving on from the product thing, that's often commoditized to the service and experience and problem-solving aspects, which are highly complex and where all the value is. Well, go there because that's where you actually can create the money for your company because that's what the customers are paying for. They're not paying anymore for a bank being able to open an account. No one's raising an eyebrow over that. So you can easily share that and, and you should openly share this kind of stuff. And Tesla's done it even with some of their car plans and whatnot because they know they're not going to win by building an electric car. They're going to win by having the right system in place to charge it and lots of other smart stuff on top of just building a thing with four wheels. Absolutely. And again, what, what I'm seeing is there are many, many organizations out there that have created for themselves the architecture for their own demise because there are so many businesses that are built they think that the triumph is raising capital. When they raise capital, they now have to spend it, but they burn through it because they don't build the business they intend to become. And you know, a 26-year-old with 100 million is a dangerous cocktail, <laughs> whatever age. You know, so, now, the, the challenge then is how that filters through the organization's culture. Because if you're now looking for your exit, and you're worried about your valuation. That then affects how you measure the success of the board and the C-suite. Then at the departmental level, the contribution people make to that outcome. But that has therefore put the, uh, or effectively made the customer a forgotten afterthought. So have we evolved at all over the last 300 years through the Industrial Revolution? And what are the uh, unintended consequences of that for the uh, day-to-day -day life of the people on the front lines? I think that's a really, really, really good question. So, and there's, there's a lot in there apart from, you know, the way we fund certain companies at the moment. But I think that the, the key thing here is that one of the reasons why I wrote 
my book. And what I try to describe in there is, is, is exactly that. I think even so we had the dot-com boom and suddenly figured out that we can sell the same products online. Wow, big leap. We're looking at this now. And back then it was such an amazing thing to do. And now we're looking at, hasn't really much evolved from there, has it? Is that originally the internet was, you know, same characteristics and the value and the opportunity was there that you have this amazing system that can share all the internet, all the data. And if you actually wire everyone up on the planet, you have this amazing exponential system of value and sharing and whatnot, whatnot. And then with the dot-com boom, we all started to, to shut it down, like lock it up into all the different silos and the companies with their products and services. So we actually inhibited our own evolution of sorts because we applied the own, the old organizational and money-making model to a brand new tool system, platform and ecosystem. And I think that's where it started to break somewhat, where it definitely slowed down, where, to give you an example, right, if I would look at tech like BitTorrent and, you know, stuff that Pirate Bay sort of runs on or basically the, 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 the download software apps actually run on, because Pirate Bay is just a distribution system sort of. You have these things where, I remember a couple of years back, over 10 years ago, there's these guys who built a thing called um, Popcorn Time. And essentially what they did, they went, had a connection to Pirate Bay and then built sort of a Netflix-like interface on top. And you could basically watch high definition, higher than Netflix even does now at times, movies, because it brought two things together. BitTorrent has a distributed network of where the files are and how you stream. And then a really nice interface where you can access these in a visual sense. Totally outperformed that. Totally potentially outperformed the whole business model of Netflix who has to buy all their own servers to stream stuff to you. Whereas on Pirate Bay, because it's decentralized, everyone else shares themselves. Everyone who's watching is sharing, right? And the download speeds there are amazing. And the cost for that is all totally distributed. So imagine you would do that, but no one did that because everyone needed to own the servers, keep the files, and uh, uh, they didn't think of the fact that people might still pay for that service to get the movies like that. But because of all the copyrights and the locking in of all of that, this kind of company who, who would have been superior in streaming 10 years ago never occurred. And the guys had to take down the website, of course, because there are a lot of illegal things there. So we're really inhibiting those kind of ideas of decentralized, free-flowing data because we have this old business model that locks everything up and in. And uh, you know, if you, if, you, if, you, if you ask, what's his name? Sir, inventor of the internet. Uh, Tim. Ah. Yeah. So, so I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. I'm just, I'm just drawing that blank. But essentially, you know, he, 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 a couple of years again started to really, really go. We need to open up all our databases and servers, and we need to start share things in different ways. And we could do that safely too. Tim Berners Lee. Thank you very much, Tim Berners Lee. Yeah. So really do that because we're really, really locking this thing down. We're, we're taking ourselves, we're taking all these opportunities away because we're we're, we're stuck with this old mindset and this old, old organizational model. This opens up so many really important questions because what, what I'm seeing is decades of training never really moved the needle much. If it did, it was single digit, maybe low double digit. And uh, you've now got all this technology being stacked up, um, all over the shop. So you end up with this technology spaghetti 
with shiny object syndrome, with you know, the blind leading the ignorant. And enormous amounts are uh, wasted on trying to drive efficiency rather than effectiveness. Now, I think what's interesting is that if we look at how important it is that the individuals, the human beings, are included throughout uh, the process of change, innovation, uh, transformation. I think something in your book jumped out at me. It was a John Nesbitt quote. The most exciting breakthroughs of the 21st century will not occur because of technology, but because of an expanding concept of what it means to be human. That really struck me as being where the real value lies with technology being an enabler. Yeah, so I think that's that. And it's not just technology itself, right? So there's a couple of things you said that I want to pick up on. But let's start with the Nesbitt quote. Very smart man that hit this thing on the nail, basically saying, and if I look at a lot of tech now, it is so commoditized that, okay, so it's, it's everywhere now. Where's the change? Change isn't really there. We're still doing the same old nonsense because the organizations make us do and use and only give us tech that lets us do the same old nonsense, right? We should be knee deep in actually being all involved somehow every day, contributing to how we solve climate change and how we contribute it better. That system doesn't exist. It's a massive thing to build and a massive thing to, massive puzzle to solve, but you know, totally doable. We've got the system, everyone's got internet, why are we not starting? And uh, I think, you know, what he said, it's, it's interesting as well, tw over 20 years ago when I did my MA in art and tech and innovation, we mainly looked at people's behavior. It did not matter what tech we used and we could sort of make up the te tech to some extent. So we were limited by saying, okay, you can pick anything you like, doesn't matter how expensive it is today or in the next five years, as long as it sort of looks like it will be existing in the next five years. So we didn't do flying cars. We're not allowed to do that. But, you know, we looked at behaviors of people and then had things, oh, you know what, in about five years or whatever, maybe a phone will be as small as a little bracelet, and therefore you can do this and you can design this because the behavior of the person is, oh, they stand on the bus stop and they're doing this and they want this and they want that. So we, we actually worked more as anthropologists than designers. And that was really interesting because in that course, they pretty much told us from the get-go, forget about the tech. And we had a base level of tech, but think of what that means for human behavior. And that was a really, really crucial aspect that I still look back at this and some of the ideas we came up 20 years ago. And still today, some of these ideas have not come to fruition, even so they would be very helpful. And people still don't think like that. And it's really bizarre. And I think that then gets me quickly just pick up on what you said between efficiency and effectiveness, right? So that's the same thing. Efficiency is just polishing the old box, making it a little bit better. Effectiveness is actually looking, hang on a second. If this is there, if the behavior around keeps changing, what is actually, what can we change? How can we look at this thing differently to be more effective? And effective also by, by definition, often, if you look at it that way, you start looking at more possibilities of solutions. You start to think outside of the box and it tends to be that efficiency gives you a little extra margin because you're just polishing the bulk box, but effectiveness starts looking out and actually often brings future revenue and much bigger, talk more about five, 10%. So it outperforms efficiency all the time. However, in organizations, yet again, most of the digital transformation or anything is, 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 is 
wrapped around the idea of efficiency. Everyone talks about automation. It's like, yeah, of course you automate. But once you automate, what are you going to do with it, right? This is where a lot of the old thinking is locked in focus on growth rather than scale. One of my influences has been Carl von Clausewitz, who wrote the book On War. And uh, the bit that really influenced me isn't the book. It was his hiring strategy. He would hire Prussian officers for laziness and high intelligence, minimum effort and minimum loss of life. I think <laughs> salespeople and business leaders should be uh, recruited for those uh, sorts of qualities as well. Because what, what I'm hearing you talk about with Pirate Bay and Napster is the, the way that those organizations effectively decoupled or disintermediated the current chain and made things easier and better. Now, the forces of the status quo and um, the forces of the establishment come up against those kind of inno innovators. Uh, one of my favorite definitions is that, that of a pioneer is uh, someone with arrows in their back. And it's difficult playing that role within a corporation where it's better for executives and middle management to shoot down ideas and play it safe. And something that you said in your book, which I think is just genius insight, is silos exist to preserve and contain whatever their contents are. Nature's always changing and evolving and recycling through a grow and decay cycle. The silo's purpose is to fight that cycle, to make it stop or at least slow it down. This describes a grain silo, but like uh, also uh, other silos like departments, contracts, election cycles, budgets, copyrights, and so on. I'm not saying that all of these are silos by default, but they generally are in a typical company. And I, I think you've you know, touched on one really critical area, which is the division of labor in the belief that it makes it, you more productive. But the unintended consequences, and I think that's where so many wicked problems stem from, it's the unintended consequences of bad early decisions where people didn't spend the time on the heavy lifting trying to imagine what might happen. Now, nothing the gods like better than a plan to destroy. But <laughs> yeah, if you haven't done the heavy lifting and the thinking, then you're just winging it. So I'm, I'm curious about your response. Yeah, so um, again, there's a lot in there. I think, you know, when you start with the silos and middle management, I'm, I'm more and more, I've just been talking, I think the last two podcasts over that, that came out of the book, uh, talking to other people, wrote smarter books. And I start to more and more ask if you can't get rid of middle management because they maintain too much status quo oh. and they're actually easily replaceable by tools. So let's replace tools with tools. <laughs> no, honestly, like if I look at this, a lot of it is reporting, slightly polishing it differently. I mean, I've been in this long enough to see how this works. There's a lot of stuff where I would say, don't have to fire these people. It's good to have people, but make them do something else that's actually more productive and then helps towards the output. Just having uh, way more things being communicated from one level to another and bottlenecking it and whatnot. How, how is that effective? 
It's not, right? It's, it's supposed to de-risk that something goes wrong. Most of the times, oddly, it doesn't because it's the same organization with levels of managers in them who are wasting millions on digital transformation and never see a benefit of it. Right. Okay. Well, what if there's a better way? Well, I hope there is. So, yeah, and I, I, and I like to. So I've never worked in a teal organization, but I've seen teams, and that's sort of where my whole team of thing comes in, just to reshift these kind of, the, the roles of a manager, I think can be easy taken in by a well-formed team. The problem usually is that people have been managed for so long that they don't feel enabled. They don't feel it's safe for them to go about it that way often. Okay. And I've seen teams who can perform that. So they don't need a manager. It's just a bunch of people. All of them can lead if they want to or present back or produce a report back to leadership and can talk to them about the project. No problem at all. In addition to that, they're even able to build a business case while they're at it because they're set up in a way that enables them to do so. And that's essentially just talking about a small startup, right? We're talking about three to five people, seven, whatever. We expect a startup to function like that. Why are we not expecting teams in big organizations to be able to function in the same way? Well, I think the middle manager has a role, but the role that they are cast in is normally that of the supervisor and or the doer. And I think those are the areas where the manager is least valuable because what they should be doing is delegating, not doing, and making the conditions right so that people lower down the chain of command have the ability to make decisions independently and without fear of retribution if they screw up. Because where we see managers being leaders and designers and planning, then spending a significant 30 to 70% of their time actually coaching in real time on the job, we see massive ROI. Uh, One of the companies I work with at the moment, billion-dollar software company, ran a program to enable 35 managers to do operational coaching, which means that you coach in the moment when they need it, not having to find an hour in a safe space and kumbaya. You know, quick and dirty on-the-job coaching and they got 426x ROI. And they're now rolling that out across 500 managers because they can see the impact it can have outside of sales in operations, in finance, in HR. And they've done this with three, four dozen companies. So it's validated. Now, I know that management can be pivotal. The problem is, in the UK alone, there are 2.4 million accidental managers based on an, on an LSE study. Within sales management, only 6%, according to a study conducted by Jonathan Farrington in 2020, were fit for purpose. Now, you smirked. It doesn't come as a surprise. So if we spend more time preparing people, we wouldn't have problems like we're suffering from today with the skill shortage and succession planning problems and the great resignation because people would be more engaged. And it comes back to that Nesbitt quote. So I think that's exactly, uh, and you, you, you sort of said 
one of the magic words there, you know, you called them coaches. You didn't, you know, you called them managers, well, but the coaching part is the thing, right? You're actually there for the people, not to control the people, right? Because if they can't do the job themselves, then you're doing something wrong and then you're falling into this old idea of management, which is, again, you know, one of these factory things where back in the Ford factories when they introduced descaling and saying, hey, you down there on the floor, you don't have to think, don't have to be creative. You do this one thing and one thing only because I tell you so. And up there, management, they're going to have all the smart ideas. And today, that's not enough. We need everyone to have smart ideas, everyone to be enabled to do something else and improve things and act a bit differently and maybe take on different roles at different times. And we're still having that echo in there with all the silos of the, you know, he's a designer, he can't code, he's a coder, he can't have an opinion on design. Are we going to bring them in later? They don't have to see this now. It's like, when late? I thought we'd work on this together. Why are, we, why are we keeping people out of the room that actually can contribute earlier, de-risking and build better stuff and quicker, right? This is insane. But um, so I think this is really good to say, you know, if we have these two and a half or more, you know, million managers. Yeah, there is very little training. I mean, you know, I got into management position myself without much training. I mean, a bit of Prince too, I think, at some point, and now a bit of Agile. Even with Agile, you know, it's it seems to be often easy to just put tasks on people rather than actually help them understand what and why they're producing what they're producing and understand the problem. Because the second they understand the problem better, they they they, they build a better solution for it, right? Because they build code, for example, not just for the moment right now as described in the task, they see the bigger picture and, oh, hang on a second, this needs to be flexible here and flexible there and becomes reusable way better. And, you know, we can still use it in a year's time rather than rewriting it in three months. Those are all important things. And I think managers or coaches need to start being able to help teams work in that way. Again, this requires a very different breed of leader and manager. For you to be able to invite in uh, the hoi polloi, you have to be vulnerable enough to hear what you don't want to hear. What was interesting, Salesforce um, uh, released some research on the podcast in January, which was really very interesting, that your innovation cycle and your product development cycle is 600% faster when you speak to the customers who are pissed off. <laughs> and the, the problem is that most people don't want to hear this. And I was speaking to my co-conspirator, Dave Davies, uh, we wrote Making Channel Sales Work Together. And uh, he made a really interesting point. And he said, why is there now a, a department for customer happiness? Isn't that everybody's job? Yeah. And I can't remember who it was. I, I wish I could credit them. Um, but they, they made the point, every job description should have a window to the customer. How are you affecting them directly or indirectly? In return, what you also need is uh, hearing the voice of the customer in its raw and unfiltered form. This is why MPS I have a real problem with. And you know, employee surveys and uh, you know, customer satisfaction surveys, because it's largely you being given a, a multiple choice to give the answers that we want. I think it's the same kind of, you know, especially if you talk about NPS, you know, as, as a service designer design thinking. So, you know, this kind of Stanford thing of doing actually customer research, understanding it, coming up with tons of ideas, and then directly go back and test yet again with the customer for an early market fit. And then 
maybe prototype and so on if it still sticks. You know, that's the kind of thing where a lot of companies are very far away from that. And I don't quite understand it because the NPS seems to be a very lazy way to not really understand the problem, but just say, oh, look, there's a number. There you go. It's lip service. Yeah, and the tricky thing with that is, you know, there's, there's companies with products who are applying this where the product isn't really a product you would promote, you know? And therefore, NPS makes no sense because it actually rarely exists that it just doesn't get promoted like that. You need other ways to do so. So the NPS, in the end, is, is maybe insignificant for your business. But the other also thing, and I think that's where it also differs well with efficiency and effectiveness, is sort of efficiency tends to be much more quantitative. Whereas effectiveness often has to step into the qualitative aspect of things, which is more complex, but which brings in higher return. And there's Joe Pine who wrote the experience, econo- experience? experience economy oh, 20 years ago in 1999, you know, when he started talking about Starbucks and how Starbucks could charge, was it $4 at the time for a cup of coffee? And they were like, this is crazy. This is way too expensive. People bought left, right and front. Loved it. Why? Well, they did. They get an experience, not like in a McDonald's where you just get the coffee and leave and, you know, it looks like someone's bathroom in there. But the, the, the thing is actually that you get this extra value, this emotional aspect, this deeper complex qualitative level that then gets represented in how much you can charge for it. And this is where and the whole com- element of trust comes in. There are a lot of concepts that I don't think people pay enough attention to. Things like buyer safety, employee and seller safety, partner safety. They're not paying attention to the actual intended outcome that the customer has. They're trying to create success for themselves instead of mutually assured success. So they they then compound uh, the resistance that customers and prospects have when their marketing material invades their day when their salespeople interrupt them. It doesn't feel like you're turning up to serve. And I, I think there's a, a real there are a series of really difficult questions that we have to address. Is the money behind us permeating the culture of our business in a way that serves our customer, serves our employee, serves our community, serves the planet? I had a really interesting conversation with an executive around that in a bank, banking client. And uh, is it, there's a weird paradox here, right? So, so his, his argument, not surprisingly, was, look, we can't do all these fancy things for the customer because if we're just building that and spending money on it, we're not going to make any money ourselves. Yeah. And obviously, the other side of that is like, well, if you don't do stuff customers like, you don't have a, you don't have a business because they're going to go somewhere else. Already seeing these people losing market share to the, um, you know, the innovators, the atoms, the revolutes. So somewhere there is, but, but you know, somewhere there is a not middle ground to find where you say, well, of course, the business needs to make money. But the business makes the best money when it solves the problems of the customer best. So that the customer goes, look, that's, that's a value I pay for. That's, that's, I pay for this. And the balance to be struck is obviously that if it takes more money for you as a business, to serve the customer, then the customer gives you back. Obviously, you're losing money. You can't do that. But there's plenty to explore to produce something cheaper than what the customer gives you back. And there you go, revenue and profit. So it's doable, but it's interesting how many companies don't even look at that like that and say, actually, our customers make us 
it's not the money the customers give, but actually the value we're, we're producing for them. And that's the thing that often seems to be missing, which is, which is odd. It is odd when you consider why customers will stay with you and then bring their wealthy friends and keep buying more and more. But if your motive is to get out fast or to drive your share price on the basis of this quarter's works of fiction that you're feeding to the market, then in all probability, it's the system that's broken. So you know, there, there, there's a whole series of bigger questions around whether the stock market and uh, the, the economic cycles that we operate and create for ourselves are benefiting the many rather than the few. The tax system, I think the tax system has to definitely be uh, given an overhaul because small businesses are penalized at the expense of large corporations. Now, I'm no socialist, but what I do understand is inequity. It feels unfair and there will inevitably be pushback. I mean, there's statistics for that, right? They know that a healthy middle class makes a better society and makes, you know, innovation more happen and so on and so on. If you just throw your money at what the government currently does, way too much, especially in the UK, at a few players and gives them billions and billions and all the small, uh, medium-sized companies are not supported, they will die. And you won't have innovation and flexibility in the market being able to grow and adopt because the big ones don't adopt. They buy in occasionally and then often trash the companies that buy them in. So, yeah, it's a total wrong system. But, you know, you can look at that and say, well, you know, there's somewhere there a mistake we made back probably in the 80s where everyone says, well, the market will solve it. So we give the money to the, to the big ones who say they're going to trickle down and create jobs, which was always nonsense. That's the myth everyone bought. And that's still being done like that because also giving the big players the money then also funnels, unfortunately, back to the politicians often to help them get reelected. So that's the cycle that runs there. And, and the population is not part of this as a, as a benefactor, unfortunately. No, it certainly feels like we've been disenfranchised. Then we look at the bigger questions around globalization, the rise of the right, the rise of populism, Brexit, the pushback, the division in the US, uh, Hungary, India, you know, all, all of these are byproducts that um, were the unintended consequences or the uncared for consequences of decisions made decades before. And I think it's quite daunting to realize just how out of control everything is outside. But what we can do within our own organizations is focus on the things we can control, who we hire the values that we operate by, how we drive behavior, the way we go to market, who we serve. You know, are we just looking at revenue, maybe profit, or are we looking at a triple or quadruple bottom line? Now, are we looking at people, planet, uh, profit, partners? Because in, in this day and age, I think uh, a collaborative focus on the bottom line is important as well. What contribution are we making to the people who bring us the most business. There's, thank God, some kind of movement definitely going on. You know, there's a lot of people who are really interested in trying to help that. And then there's the whole thing around B Corps, B Corporations, you know, to become better companies in terms of sustainability, in terms of partnering with other companies and maintaining a very different set of principles and values that a lot of big corporates have. 
today. So that's positive. So there's a good one. And hopefully that grows more quickly now than ever. And it's been growing over COVID, even so a lot of things went down. B Corps did amazingly well on that. So they're 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 on the growth cycle. So they're they're doing quite well. Another really interesting area that I'd love to explore is how does one make sustainability a profit center? There's no shame in profit, so long as it comes uh, not at the price of long-term destruction. So sometimes there are short-term price to be paid at a local level for a greater good at a, a global level. That gets us back yet again to understanding the problem and understanding it's a, it's, a, it's a systemic thing. And, you know, I think if you just look at one thing like changing the light bulbs, you don't see the knock-on effect and other things, other effects that has. And um, it's interesting, I think on one of our, I think last year on one of our podcasts, we had Jill Friend there over from the West Coast. He's been working on sustainability for decades when a lot of people weren't even interested in it. And he said, today, if you don't make money, with your sustainability efforts, you're not doing it right. There's a ton of money to be made by reusing, reselling, improving your 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 value chain and your supply chain and all of that. He's talking to, and he gave us an example on the on the show. He said, like, there's just this client here, it's pretty big, and they're actually quite good in sustainability. Didn't want to name name, but he said, like, we went in there and they talked to me and they wanted to get better. And they said, Oh, we're pretty, we're doing quite fine, actually. We're getting quite a bit of return. We want, to, we want to get better and let's have a look. And, and, and he said, well, if you really look at your whole system, you're probably going to find another big, big number there. And they were like, mm, yeah, let's, let us have a look. So he got called up a couple of months later and the guy goes, so Jill, go, Jill goes like, so is it a big number? And the guy goes, nope, it's a massive number. <laughs> like it's 20% or more of our actual revenue we could save. We could claim back. We could get back through different activities and improvements and whatnot and looking at this very, very differently. So that's a company already who's doing already really well in sustainability across their ecosystem. And there's still there's still much more to do for them to the point where it massively affects the bottom line. There's there's someone else around, someone else on company, a new CEO coming in, and they, they had a sustainability uh, business that actually brought in revenue, 6 million revenue just a sustainability thing. And they were not in sustainability, right? It's just improving supply chain, whatever. CEO took the whole thing out. And, and so they, they lost 6 million in revenue just because they stopped doing the sustainability. And the, the evidence is there, and I think these days, there's more and more case studies around it where this isn't a thing anymore. Sustainability is highly profitable for your company. You're saving tons of money, if not making some money, by starting to look at those things. So that's sort of the stories. Very interesting. Okay, so let, let's just uh, keep our promise that we made at the top of the call. And <laughs> um, when we're looking for the essence of a business, what what are the um, the questions we should be asking ourselves? Yes. So, so one of the things I found for a long, long time is obviously you know you had a big focus on tech. So and a lot of companies go, you know what, we're just going to bring the right tech in, AI, machine learning, uh, whatever buzzword over the last twenty years. It will improve our business, but it will move us into this kind of digital thing that we don't really do, and it's going to change us, and that's not good. Well, often it did because companies didn't really understand the tech and started doing stuff that is actually not contributing to the essence of who they are. So it felt uncomfortable. It started to produce products that they weren't comfortable with either, so they didn't sell well or they weren't produced right, you know, because it just jarred with, with that is. And I think that didn't need to happen at all. 
I'll give you one 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 example that I'm sort of still working on or want to work on. But so I was working here in the UK with Nationwide Building Society. Building Society, yeah. yeah. So and they're struggling, of course, because they're not real banks, so they can't compensate a lot with other products uh, like credit cards and so on. You know, they they're, they're losing money on savings accounts and they're only making money with the mortgage mortgages. They're a very loved brand, quite conservative, but they have a beautiful, great origin story, which is couple of guys in a village individually weren't able to afford a home, pulled their money together and managed to afford the first guy to house and then the second and so on, right? So the origin of an HMO has a multiple ownership. Yeah. So, and essentially that's still what they do. They're dishing out mortgages or that's what they do, ended up doing. They did dishing out mortgages. But what they didn't elevate this is, well, how can you with digital technology support the essence of how you were created, which wasn't to give someone mortgage. It was to help someone get enough money to buy a house. The mortgage account is a small aspect of that, right? What you actually have to look at is like, how am I going to save enough money to get there? How do I know how much I can save? How are, you know, evolve my savings to get to the level of buying a house? It's getting more and more expensive. It would be easy for them to shift the essence from we give you a mortgage to we help you buy the house. It wouldn't shift their brand a single inch. But through tech, the tech then could enable that effort by solving that problem of helping someone to save money to eventually get a house. Maybe something else too, who knows? But let's stay, stick with the house. So as you can see, I don't have to move away from the origin story, from the purpose of the company. I just enable and move it into the new century. And if I do that and I have that focus, if, I, if I'm clear about the essence of that, I'm fine. And I will buy the right tech for the right reasons because that supports that cause, that essence. And most industries have been not really stepped back and asked themselves, like, what is our essence? So for example, automotive, obviously, same thing. Well, it's not about giving you the car anymore. It's about getting you from one place to another. That's the essence of why you exist. You help that. You have one solution, but... You know, you can up that and elevate it and shift that, but you can stick to why you exist, which is getting people from there to there. And a lot of companies I've seen in industry, I've not seen them really understand that. So very often it's about uh, understanding your market fit and your, the reason why your customers would give a damn. Jerry Lemberg, who uh, was a, an old mentor of mine, he always used to describe entrepreneurs as people who created elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. I think far too often, too little thinking has gone into thinking as the customer. And instead, you've come up with the cucumber cover or something um, equally bizarre. So how do you get to the point where you're creating a product or service or solution that customers actually want? What's the process in design thinking to get to that point? Yeah, so I think a big part of that is experimentation, but it's experimentation not necessarily based on what you already have, but based on helping to understand what the problem really is, right? Often with customers, you'll either hear them say certain things or there's certain symptoms of a problem. And the tricky thing is to get through the symptoms to the root cause and then figure out, okay, if that's the root cause, how can I contribute to making that just enough better? to create some value and someone will be paying for it. And 
some of the simple examples there are, you know, none of this stuff is rocket science, which is why I'm sometimes not understanding why no one goes out and asks those questions. Like, ask why. The three whys are one of those mechanics or tools or exercises you can play with someone. And you should try it sometime if you've never done so. Just go and if there's a problem, ask why, and they will answer that. Then ask why is that and why is that. Within three rounds, you will, will be at a very substantial core problem and say, oh, actually, this is the problem we want to solve. Right, okay. So how can we do that? So the pain that's currently created is gone. And you look for those moments and you build solutions around it. And uh, when you come back with the solution to the customer, you ask, would you pay some money for this, right? And if you find someone saying yes, then you got your first customer. So it's that kind of experimentation to look at the, look at the problem at the core of it. That's why I also say essence of you know the problem. Because most companies exist because there's the essence of a problem, but they've forgotten what it is. You see this all the time. They created the product or service because they would have been a customer. And then they became so absorbed in their own greatness that they forgot the customer. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, my years over in advertising and marketing, it's amazing what on that level, often, you know, CMO, so the marketing department level of a company, how much they think their company and products are so amazing that people would just sweep them up. And the reality is customers often don't care, you know, and it's, it's, it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, look, we've come to the top of the hour, uh, sadly, because this has been a fascinating conversation. I'd love to do this again. I just want to wrap up on uh, one thing. When you start to see that the solutions you're putting in place are failing to resolve the problem, what advice would you give a leader to uh, unpick and identify their blind spots? So I think usually, and I've seen this very, I see this very often, um, especially in digital transformation, where you have this big ambition about being innovative or you know, innovations always on top of things, changing how people work in order to solve something. In the good projects, I found that people are allowed to very early on build a bit of a business case on anything they approach, which then often enables them to have a clear understanding why you would pivot. So the problem here is on the projects where that doesn't exist, where there is no business case building, no real description, why we're here, what do we want to improve? There is no starting point with understanding why a solution even works because nothing gets really measured, just stuff gets just produced. So you end up with, you know, 100 features, you can't prioritize them, you don't know which one to test first because you don't have any criteria. And I've seen a lot of projects that work like that. The second, But the second you go and actually are able to go to the customer, ask those questions, and then build a business case on saying, look, this is the problem we want to solve for the customer. We think it's worth that because we asked the customer. They gave us an initial estimate. And now we can start experimenting, putting a solution together, and then test again and see if it's still worth that or if it's better or not. And then some people sometimes say, you know, you have to try about seven times to get to a good level. But it's sort of that. In most projects where the business casing doesn't exist, you don't end up pivoting. In the ones where it exists, I had pivots to the sound of a couple of million in difference where people wanted to spend some X amount of million already earmarked on a product. Oh, we just decide to print this and this. Second, you go research and try to find out what's going on to realize, oh, actually, they don't need this. They don't need a new product. They don't. What they actually need is this thing. And then you build that thing and that creates massive benefits. But you're not, you can't ever end up there if you don't start with some level of business case 
and then are able, therefore, to pivot based on some data, some insight or something and are allowed to do so. And I've seen just a lot there where the blind spots are really that where you're not allowed to speak back like that. You're not allowed to pivot there because someone else has made up their mind based on nothing really to spend that budget. And it's, it's, that's, those things never work. I'd put one piece before all of that, which is to map out your customer's true journey and to understand that so that you can identify the moments along that journey where they will face peril, where they will get stuck and they won't be able to get out of it themselves. And also to identify the triggers or the clues that they're going to be entering into that phase so that you can be there at that moment when they need a guide. Yeah, so that's exactly, you know, um, as we previously spoke about, you know, when we looked at behaviors and behaviors exist in a context, how does the context look like? What happens before, during and after? Where is the pain point? How does the pain point manifest itself? And what can you do about it? It's exactly that. So you have that journey. It's basically an engagement with actual reality, right? The closer you get to reality, the more often you check with reality, the more robust your ideas will become. And it doesn't cost a fortune anymore to go pick up the phone, go online on a Zoom and talk to a customer. It's pennies. I don't know why companies are doing it as little as they actually do because it, it, it saves them. It would save them money. Because the customer's an inconvenient afterthought. Yeah, I don't know. See, sometimes, see, I've seen the second you actually introduce these things and you start working on a process like that where you more often check with the customer and get people into conversations. I've seen whole teams developing smiles about their jobs and, you know, being really interested about what the next insight is and what the next nut is to crack that a customer throws at them. It's, you know, I think people can throw. You know, people thrive a lot through helping other people. I think, and I, I agree, we're all there. So I think if you enable it, you can do it. I think it's an interesting comment you made there because the question is, where does it come from? How how is that becoming such a thing in a company that actually people stop doing it? Where did that start? Right. Well, you you look at the levels of disengagement. Uh, it, according to uh, was it Gallup or uh, Gartner? Gallup or McKinsey? Uh, whatever. Uh, it was Gallup or Gartner. It was one of the G's. Only nine percent of the UK workforce is highly engaged. Only fourteen percent of Europeans. Yeah. Now, that's a damning indictment of leadership and management and the culture that allows people to get to that point. Because when you look at the statistics of the people who are actively disengaged and uh, only mildly engaged, that reflects on how the customer experiences it. And you only have to look at the way most of these customer uh, service uh, solutions are set up, that you end up speaking to a voice system and then you get passed from one person to another who doesn't know what they're doing and has, doesn't have authority because they, management doesn't trust them to make those decisions, and so they have to escalate. And you end up with a middle management layer that's run ragged. There's something, there's something in there as well where you basically have this odd rigid system that often, and I've seen this as well in a lot of projects, where design thinking gets that rap often as well just because it has the word thinking in it, right? Which is the research aspect where you actually just go and you listen. And you learn, right? So the listening and learning often, and I've just seen it on a project I work currently. It's totally ignored because it's not considered doing something, right? And doing is production. Doing is efficient. 
whereas thinking isn't. And it's like, hang on a second, as we as we as you stated, you know, much earlier with Einstein, there's a massive massive value here. And for some reason, sitting in a room and talking or listening is not considered being productive. And a lot of meetings are very unproductive. We know this, but they often are because we haven't asked the initial question of why we're here. And if we have that initial listening and question, we understand it a bit, then we have something to revel around. We can get excited about and we can actually know what we're drilling deeper into. And often that doesn't exist because of budget. It's not perceived to produce anything. And so it gets cut out. The simplest solution to that is enabling managers by teaching them how to ask questions in the moment on the fly. Because if they start asking questions, they stop taking other people's monkeys on their back and they put the the onus and the responsibility back on uh, the other person. And the key is teaching these middle managers, not only that they have the right and responsibility to do that, but to teach them how to ask good, insightful questions. If you want better answers, ask better questions. But I think this is unfortunately also a thing that goes all the way up to leadership. So again, you know, in one of the projects I'm working on, I just seen this where, you know, the report decks we are putting together, they prefer showing wireframes over showing insights from research. The leadership's not that interested into insights because they think they know everything. So they want to see the wireframes because that's the thing that's going to go live. And that's the thing that where they can comment on if the tab is right or if it should be blue or whatnot. And it's just all upside down. The solution should not matter. You know, I like to say, love the problem, not the solution. It's like the solution, you're going to be producing over the next few months, a hundred different solutions, trying to experiment what's the best, most effective thing you can produce, right? So stop loving it too much. Look at the problem and how you can drill deeper and how you can get that slight iteration today of learning that over the next three months will set you ahead of your competition. This is really interesting because I I remember um, I was working with a property company and we placed the marketing director and in the course of the interview process, the CFO said something really banal, but it was telling. And uh, because um, the marketing director was saying, you know, the way to do this is to experiment. And the CFO said, well, you know, all in favor of experimenting, but can you not do the ones that don't work? And actually, that's what stifled the, uh, the opportunity for the marketing director who eventually left because couldn't get anything done because they, uh, they just couldn't get budget or resource to test stuff. And all they did was the same old, same old. So they continued to grow at a, a relatively lackluster rate. It's bizarre. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I run my podcast as well, where, you know, we read a business book a week and trying to crack. Well, there, there's plenty of business books and smart stuff out there, you know. You know, you know what you're talking about. I have my experience and my insights from lots of other books and my own experience. It's not like this is rocket science. The odd thing is, why is there a gap between why the hell are you not doing this? It's not going to cost you an arm. I have a theory on this, which I think we should finish on because otherwise yeah. I'm going to be very unwelcome. And you, I let you help. be the smart guy. <laughs> which is that it's about attachment. Yeah. You have five or six big competitors. Fear apathy, denial, ignorance, and ego are the big ones. But the biggest of all, uh, well, ego and the status quo. The status quo has a magnetic pull. And when I was in the training business, I always used to say that pain outsells gain by 12 to 1. Actually, if you look at the flip side of the same coin, the gain needs to be at least 12x 
the value in order to get people out of inertia and to let them see that there is more value in letting go of the past and being ready to embrace the future. But in order to do that, you have to put some heavy thinking in. And very few salespeople put any heavy thinking in. They just turn up and then they vomit product information and then they wonder why no one buys. I think that goes into and it's supported by there's a lot of lot of new studies in psychology say like, you know, we're actually all our brain is doing is trying to minimize pain. It's just focused on it, right? So the second I can get rid of it, I'm a bit more comfortable, I'll go with it. I'll not, it costs our brain a lot of extra effort. And that's also with the A and the B brain about, you know, you're pulling stuff out of your existing library. That's low energy level. You're not burning a lot of calories on that. Actually questioning what you already know is a really high energy process. And obviously as human beings, as species, we try to minimize that. So we, 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 were, we were built to fall back on what we know. It's a preferable thing to do because it helps us Absolutely. save energy. And that's a good survival thing, right? <laughs> Number one instinct is to look for what feels familiar. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, our eyes are good too, you know. Very interesting. Marcus, we need, sadly, we need to wrap up. But um, tell me this you've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Marcus, age 23. What would you tell him? Oh, I think I got very, something very simple and silly in there. And I think it would probably be, uh, well, I'll cheat a bit and I'll answer with two things. One is like just buy Apple and Tesla stock and keep it as long as you can. <laughs> uh, and I think the other thing is, you know, start a company earlier. The big organizations, I think I learned less in the last 10 years than I did the 10 years before when I had more time to think and look into people's behavior. I don't think any of that approach has substantially changed. And something in myself tells me, so it's not wasted time. I don't want to look at it like that. Obviously, it's been great. I've done a lot of interesting things. But yeah, to give things a bit of a head start, just just trust in yourself a bit more and just, just, just go with it. And you will still have the same amount of people actually disagreeing with you, I think, in the end. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, Marcus, how can people get hold of you? Well, they can find me easily on LinkedIn or they can go to thewickedcompany.com or find The Wicked Podcast, which is my podcast. And as you noted, there's a book as well called The Wicked Company. So it's all the same word, all the same name, easy to find. Uh, and just come and say hello. Excellent. Marcus Kish, thank you. Thanks, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, then please do get in touch and like, comment, share, tag, give it a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to be a guest, then please email me, marcus at laughs-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.